In the auto industry, you need a partner that can develop the next game-changing technology and mass-produce it quickly. Borg Warner can. Our expertise drives future mobility trends with fast-to-market solutions for clean, efficient propulsion systems. We understand the challenges you face. We know what you need to get ahead. We take innovation from the drawing board to the road quickly, providing localized production around the world. Borg Warner, your partner in propulsion system solutions for a cleaner, more energy efficient world. Hello and welcome to the best of AutoLine this week for 2017. As we continue to celebrate our 20th anniversary on television, we cover so many important topics throughout the year that we thought we should revisit a few of our best discussions for those of you who might have missed them the first time around. So just as the Detroit Auto Show kicks off the beginning of each year, we'll start out with the episode that we did on the future of auto shows and hear from the experts that auto shows are not just for the older generation after all. And uh, I would say three or four years ago, millennials accounted for about 10% of auto show employee uh, uh, attendees. Today accounts for 30%. So, I mean, it's, it's a huge increase in attendance and it has driven up the attendance at auto shows uh, almost 50%. It's just amazing what has happened. Fifty percent increase in attendance. In attendance, yes. That's a huge increase. It is, and it, and it's the return of the millennials that weren't there at all to speak of three or four years ago. But today, yes, fifty percent increase in attendance, and and that's among buyers. To make it even a, even a stronger conversation, twenty-two percent of all buyers last year attended an auto show, and most of them were influenced to purchase by the auto show. That number was a lot lower. Uh, four years ago. So auto shows are a very critical, uh, uh, play an important role in boosting car oh, sales. They do. And uh, and in the millennial, among the millennials, it's even more so because they don't have prior experience. And so the reliance on uh, what to buy uh, is is through search. So, and, and auto shows are, are part of that search. Rick, yeah. you go to probably just about every auto show there is. And not just in the U.S., I, I know you go to a lot of auto shows outside of this country as well. Do you see the same thing happening, that millennials are playing a bigger role in this? Well, for us, you know, I can't really speak on the marketing side so much, but certainly a lot of the vehicles that we're making, the brands, we hope are, are attractive to those, uh, to those folks. But it's, it's still the same prominence and important for us, importance for us. I know there's been a lot of change, a lot more, uh, a lot more social and such. But for us, still the captive audience of all the media, and that's really how we help communicate uh, communicate our messages to the consumer. So uh, very, very important for us. Yeah, your thoughts, Stephanie? Well, it's it's important to remember too that the auto show has several several um, reasons for being. You know, you've got the media side and you've got the public side. At the Detroit Auto Show, we're lucky enough to also have the industry days side, which is. It's a rare special opportunity that doesn't happen at most shows. So it's a, it's a multi-purpose event, um, and media does stay quite strong. Getting the millennials back on board is really a terrific thing. And kind of, I, I, I have to say, I wasn't really believing it when, when we were saying millennials don't like cars anymore. It, it really was much more about economics and not having 
the ability to buy them. And when you can't buy something, you're much less interested in going to check it out. And millennials are also tend to, to really search out experiences and search out what they're interested in. So it also makes sense within that generational group for them to want to go and see it and experience it themselves. Auto shows provide an opportunity where you don't have a salesperson right there for you. To, but you do have product specialists usually on the stands that can answer some questions about how a car may or may not work. And yet, despite what you're saying, we're seeing fewer young people get their driver's license. We know right now that teenagers with driver's license as a percentage are at the lowest they've been probably in all of our lifetime. So how do you jive that with what you're saying? Millennials, millennials? aren't teenagers anymore. Okay, okay. Well, that, that's fair enough. But I would say even, you, you can take it up, uh, I, I want to say the latest research I showed showed a, a strong decrease up through 30-year-olds and even a decrease up through 40-year-olds. I think part of it tends to be we do have changes in the economy and it is a, a bit of a life stage thing too, um, when you need it. We, we're getting older and older before we actually need to have a license. If you look kind of at the way that, that the things are happening with kids today a little bit more so, you've got parents driving around, you've got the social media, you've got different reasons for not necessarily having to have a car until you're post-college mm -hmm. and until you're starting a family. So there's different points, different reasons for that, driving the, the delayed um, acquisition of those licenses as well. And yet it's still all about freedom. I mean, you know, what, what kid doesn't want to get away, take the keys, be able to leave the house, and, uh, you know, it's great, too, for them to pick up milk and anything that you want them to. <laughs> we were not only surprised by what we learned about millennials and intenders, but we were pleased to learn that organizers of other major auto shows keenly watched this particular episode for the inside information. And that's because we specialize in getting you in front of the people who are actually making the decisions that affect the automotive industry. Like the show that we did on what they're calling big data that's getting collected by cars and how the auto industry plans to make money off of it. So all this data that's coming from the vehicle, and we call it digital exhaust, how do you take that data and turn that into gold? How do you turn that into you know, meaningful value for consumers, meaningful value for cities in, in how they manage and operate their transportation systems? How do you improve the flow of goods and, and people within cities and across highways? And, and that's really, that's really uh, data monetization, capturing that data and turning that into meaningful profits for the companies that are taking that data and creating insights and improving the lives of people. Okay, John McFarland, you're with General Motors. How does a car company take this data and monetize it? I mean, how do you do it? Well, I think the, the first step is actually being able to collect the data, which is something that the auto industry historically hasn't been leading in. But I think when you look at a company like GM, where we've had OnStar since 1996, and we now do 11 billion pieces of data, anonymized data every day from our connected vehicle fleet around the world. And so the first step is being able to have access to that data, anonymized, and, and to be able to collect Explain it. Explain that, because a lot of people have never oh. heard that term, anonymized. Yeah, it's, so collecting data from the car and anonymized means that you can't trace it back to a specific person or, or to a specific vehicle. And so what you're doing is you're getting an information around a whole fleet of vehicles, and so you can draw conclusions, you can understand habits and behaviors, but not down to the individual level. And that's important, because when you think about connected cars, Privacy is a, is a really big concern and something that OEMs and companies like GM take very seriously. So the ability to anonymize the data, collect it, analyze it, and then to be able to create experiences, be able to monetize it is important. But that trust, that ability to have high quality data that's anonymized and so that you maintain trust with customers is absolutely critical. Okay, and we're going to get into more of that, but i got to bring Ben Hoffman into the discussion here because 
your company, Movimento, now with Delphi, is sort of developing the enabling technology to do this. Right, right. And what is that technology? How do you collect all this so stuff? There's multiple pieces, and, and John's in a great position with, with General Motors since 96, as really industry leaders for connectivity. Much of the rest of the industry is not there. So Delphi has been on an aggressive strategy over the last two, three, four years to develop a data strategy that can be deployed for mobility services, right? different topic to, to circle back to, automated driving, and then just the current near-term opportunities of data collection, data analytics, how do you, how do you reduce cost? And, and then from a partner strategy, uh, Autonomo, an Israeli company, has a data marketplace. So data can be captured and collected and then shared, opt-in, for a Starbucks or other retail environments or insurance. Control Tech is another piece of the, the Delphi data strategy that they've acquired two years ago to do deep level data analytics, engineering level physics model based mm -hmm. analytics of that data, again, things that General Motors has been leading for, for a number of years, but to bring that to the rest of the industry, be a real game changer. And a game changer in the sense too, right? Because uh, every car company is probably collecting data and, and constructing it in a different way you need right. some way to make it common for everybody to use. Absolutely, and that, I know Joe will come back to that of the cities and, and the global opportunities to collect data, but if the data is from different OEM brands, which it will be by definition, very hard to make sense of the data for the analysis tools to leverage that. So if you can get the data in a, in a more standardized way, and there's a lot of industry terms and, and options to do that, but Delphi is going to be a leader in that space also. Joe, before we get into all the cities, sure. let, let's talk about how big this market may become. McKinsey came out with a study earlier this year that said the value of the data generated in cars could be worth anywhere from $450 billion a year to $750 billion a year by 2030, which in automotive terms is just a couple of design cycles away. Do you guys see it the same way at Deloitte? Or where do you think, or how big, I should ask, could this market become? So, so f first point is no one knows. Um, but the way, the way that we kind of look at it is you got to look at you know, what the current value chain is and what the value chain of the future is. And we've done extensive research around you know, how the value chain is, where the money goes. So if you look at you know, the current value chain in the U.S. for just the selling and maintenance, uh, and all the services associated with the vehicle, it's about $2 trillion and about uh, you know, $5 trillion globally. Then if you add on top of that uh, public transportation, which is a big component of it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's at least double, double that. So in the future, you know, where, where, where the opportunity is going to be is the shift from this, this physical value chain to a digital value chain. And all of the, you know, the opportunity is going to be based upon what the efficiencies and the savings can be as you move from the current mode of transportation to this future mode. So as we move to electric vehicles, as we move towards car sharing, as we move for autonomous vehicle, what, what, is, what is the savings and efficiencies associated with that? And we believe that it's, it, it could be at least as, you know, as much as 50%. John, can you give us an example of how this works? And I gotta believe that you guys are already onto it and that you know, you're not waiting for the next decade before you can start monetizing sure. that. Yeah, and I think the key to monetization of data is that, it, it, again, it all comes back to the customer. And are we able to make the customer experience better? Are we able to make it better to own a GM vehicle as a result? And I think a good example of that is a program we have called Smart Driver. And so what Smart Driver does is it takes a, a, really a customer pain point around owning a vehicle, which is car insurance, and something that's expensive and that, frankly, there's a lot of, a lot of um, you know, misunderstanding about how it works. And we all kind of pay fees to the middle of the curve. And what Smart Driver does is it enables customers to get real-time feedback, excuse me, feedback over how they drive 
based on real-time data conditions. And so if you are um, hard braking, if you're accelerating too quickly, you can get feedback on that driving behavior. And then if you choose to as a customer, you can then have a report generated after 90 days that gives you a, a for lack of a better term, a report card on how, well, how good of a driver you are. And if you're Joe and it comes back and it says you're a 95 percentile driver, you're exceptional, um, you can then share that with an insurance company and actually save money on your insurance. And so what you see there, I think, is a three-way value creation, which is really important when it comes to data collection. Customer benefit is they're saving money and they're hopefully becoming better and safer drivers. For GM, we're able to provide a better experience for our customers and then participate in the value stream with insurance companies. And insurance companies are getting qualified um, customers basically that are, are, have lower risk, risk profiles and can price accordingly. So I think that's an example of how the value chain has to work. Well, if that topic doesn't get the ideas flying, then maybe our next Best of 2017 episode will. Because on this show, the discussion was all about the next big disruptor that's coming, using autonomous electric aircraft for transportation. Sort of an Uber using drones to move people around. I think you know, what you can see is a really, uh, the public is excited about when they see these personal drones flying around. They, it's not, not a far reach for them to imagine being in a bigger one and being able to go when they want, where they want, uh, and being able to, to be taxied around, if you will, in a drone. And this is coming. Uh, it's absolutely coming. We're seeing uh, prototypes built. We're seeing demonstration programs. Uh, they're flying as we speak. What's been the change that has enabled this? Yeah, I think the, the real change has been sort of the confluence or, or timing of technology, some of the key technologies. So as you see the basic, you know, little, not toy, toy but, but private drones, uh, personal drones, you can imagine they've figured out some of the, the battery technology from some of the, uh, the automotive industry is happening at scale. They're looking at uh, the, the engines that are much more efficient, uh, looking at the geospatial technology with uh, the readily available and accurate GPS. Um, and then you're looking at uh, the, the advent and then starting to accept the autonomous uh, driving capability, in this case, <coughs> autonomous flying. We all know that we have autopilots today, and if you couple that with some of the, the uh, automobile uh, technologies and, and those software engineers can now put together and integrate the key technologies that, that are overcoming some of the traditional barriers of being able to do something that's pilotless. John Riminelli, you're actually starting to build one of these things or tell us a little bit about your company and what your plans are. Sure. Uh, started the company in 2011 with this concept of uh, leveraging the automotive industrial base to build uh, low-cost uh, aircraft systems that connect the nation's 15,000 airports. We as a country uh, only use roughly less than 1% of the available infrastructure for air transportation and that really seemed like sort of a great opportunity to solve that problem by mass producing craft, make them affordable and, and connecting those cities. Um, starting small we started building unmanned aircraft systems for uh, military, public safety, uh, firefighters, uh, did fairly well. We worked with a very, very large defense company for about three years and um, you know, the writing was on the wall with uh, you know, the, the low cost product coming out of, uh, out of China. And we just said, look, we're not gonna, you know, it's not worth it. Let's focus on mobility for cargo and passengers. So we took what we learned, uh, escaped, uh, we were able to sort of move on from, from, from small unmanned systems and apply our knowledge towards larger aircraft. Our aircraft currently is uh, about 5,000 pounds. 
Um, and uh, we leverage validated existing EV technology from motors, uh, battery management systems, uh, control systems, and we essentially just repackaged it. And instead of using wheels, we use propellers. And uh, so I to say we don't reinvent the wheel, we just turn it sideways. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to get into more details, but we've got to bring Bob Lutz into the conversation. A car guy through and through, as we mentioned, uh, former vice chairman of General Motors, but you've always been a pilot, yep. marine fighter pilot. You've owned your own planes and helicopter. Right. What do you see this all doing? Well, I, I, I like to believe I'm somewhat of a futurist, you know, and I, I, I tend to anger people in the automobile industry when I say the era of car ownership and uh, variously styled cars uh, is all going to go away. It's going to be autonomous, normed, interconnected modules that nobody will own, uh, and it'll, we'll, we'll see a lot less congestion in the city. This uh, obviously, and this is in a, over a 30-year 30 30 time frame, but it's going to happen by stages, and it's going to start happening uh, with, at an accelerated pace four or five years from now. But, and this, this angers people in the industry because it doesn't make the stock go up. Uh, but the, the way I see it is, uh, 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 John's absolutely right. We're not using three-dimensional space. And as Robin said, the, the same uh, precision digital maps that are now being created for a, lot of car, for a lot of cars, they can be implanted in an airplane or a, a flying machine just as easily. And all of the sensors, you know, the ground proximity sensor to start decelerating, the, it's all there. I mean, the technology is all available. It just has to be put together. And the military has been flying autonomous reconnaissance aircraft for probably about 20 years. Uh, I mean, the, I was a board member of Northrop Grumman when we did the Global Hawk, and that could fly autonomously from a base in California to a base in, in Australia, land itself and taxi up to the reviewing stand with the generals in it. And, uh, and uh, the, the quadcopters today, again using the model of the uh, little commercial ones that you fly to take pictures with, but it scales easily. And, and my point is people say, yeah, but the batteries, the batteries, they don't have to be battery powered. You can, you could use a reliable, quiet, four-cylinder, 200-horsepower gasoline engine just as well. But the quadcopter is stable. Uh, it's relatively silent. The blade speeds aren't as high as, as they are at the tips of a helicopter rotor. They're safe because the rotors are completely encased. And point-to-point uh, -point travel is going to be much easier in these things, and the technology required for obstacle avoidance is going to be trivial compared to what you have to do for cars. On, on the highway, there's construction, flooding, pedestrians, fallen logs, all of this stuff that isn't in the, in the, in the precision maps. And uh, that's where you need all these in-vehicle sensors to cope with new situations. Well, up in the air, there are no new situa situations, and you'll be able to go point to point. And I think, frankly, the, the automobile industry is showing a huge myopia in saying, no, 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 we don't do that stuff. If it doesn't have four wheels and travels on a highway, we're not interested. But they should be thinking mobility. Yeah. And the future is exactly what John is going to do here. It's, mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, 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 I want to see 
I would very much like to see the U.S. get very actively involved in this because other than if we don't, as India and China are going to take it all. Well, flying like that may be still off in the future, but it seems that hydrogen-powered cars have been just around the corner for the last 20 years. Well, in fact, as we learned in the next segment, they may finally be getting closer than ever. 50 years ago, the technology was just coming right out of the space program. That, that Electrovan, that was the first introduction of space technology into a civilian sector. And we found the challenges, but they weren't really solvable in that time frame. In the last 15 years or so, the technology has, has just systematically been developing through all of the roadblocks. And now the teams have been able to get systems that not only can meet the technical challenges, but also start to address the cost barriers. And that's been one of the big developments that's happened more recently. And now you're also seeing the infrastructure coming out. So as the infrastructure starts to develop along with the vehicles, you'll see more of these types of things. Steve, Honda's been very aggressive about this. You had the fuel cell clarity, which you let certain people lease. Now you've got the latest generation clarity in California, and you'll let just about anybody go out We're and lease this well, thing. Well, anybody, anybody. We're ready for prime time. The, the fueling infrastructure's developing. Uh, it's very comfortable to drive around LA and San Francisco or between the two at this point. And uh, we've got a lot of interest in the car and uh, we have a car that we think uh, is uh, ready for the public. Very small volume right now, and you know it's not going to grow just yet. Why come to market right now with it? Well, you need to start. So uh, there's kind of a ratcheting up between the units in operation and the fueling infrastructure, and we put cars out there, the fueling infrastructure is used, uh, there's more investments in fueling infrastructure, we put more cars out there. Gotcha. And Brian, what's NREL's involvement in all of this? What do you guys do over there that's related to fuel cells? So we do research in all sorts of renewable areas and within the transportation area, we're particularly focused on energy efficiency um, and how we move forward and benefit other systems. So one of the great things about hydrogen is you can actually make it from wind and the solar energy and use it to do things that they usually don't do. They usually go to the grid, but in this case, you can move them into the harder areas to function, uh, like industry and transportation at some level. And uh, what were some of the technical hurdles that had to be overcome? I mean, what have been, it's taken decades to get here. What, what, Brian, what, well, what's... There's been billions of dollars put into this, um, things like decreasing catalyst loadings and improving the durability, getting um, more durable membranes, um, stack components, balance of plant systems. There's just a ton of tremendous um, technological advances that have gone into these systems and basically allowed them to get to um, a point where at low production volumes, they have challenges from cost, but when you project them to larger scales, they can be competitive in the marketplace with the incumbent technologies. Yeah, some of the vehicles that we're driving not even two decades ago, it, they, they were very much research projects. And this is no longer a science fair experiment. I mean, we are well beyond that now. Those older vehicles, I can, I can remember hearing the stories about the first time one of the, uh, about 18 years ago, the vehicle was driving and it had to go in a certain direction to keep the water inside the stack from sloshing to the wrong side, which would cause the stack to, to fail. So there's been a lot of development. And so systematically, the teams have gotten through each one of those. We've learned how to deal with water. We've learned to deal with hot and cold temperatures and the dynamic performance so that when you tip into the pedal, it behaves like you expect it to behave. And, and, and then the cost, right? Yeah, cost and uh, the um, uh, customer expectation 
for durability and range and fueling experience. So a lot's evolved in the rest, the rest of all of that. But Charlie mentions cost, and our two companies have been working together uh, to reduce cost and come up with a design that we're going to be manufacturing together. Talk a little bit about this, because I think most people are unaware that General Motors and Honda are collaborating on actually putting these fuel cells into production. Yeah, you might think strange bedfellows, but it's a good, uh, a good arrangement. Uh, the two companies together were probably the uh, number one and number two uh, holders of patents for fuel cell technology. And in 2011, we formed a uh, joint venture to uh, come up with a fuel cell that was a more advanced design and to reduce the um, uh, cost. Uh, severely so that this would be uh, more of a mass scale powertrain. And recently we made another announcement you probably want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so we've been working from a co-development standpoint and, and integrating the design, as, as Steve mentioned. Once we got it to the point that we, we could see the pathway to take that the next step, we formed this manufacturing joint venture, which was announced in January. And that will be uh, a jointly owned 50-50 manufacturing joint venture. It'll be located in Brownstown, Michigan. And at that, at, at that location, we will assemble the systems that will be used by both companies for fuel cell applications. I know General Motors has said in the past it was not going to introduce a fuel cell vehicle until it felt the technology had legs to it, if you will, that it wasn't going to be obsolete in a few years' time. Are we at that point right now where you think this, this technology's got legs to it? Well, we're at the point where we think it's time to go to a manufacturing system that we can actually start to scale up because um, as I think I've talked to you about in the past, um, at, at the points in the, in the previous generations, the technology was actually evolving too fast. Um, we wanted it to do that, but it was too fast to invest in a manufacturing scale that could really push those limits from a manufacturing standpoint because it would have been out of date just so quickly. At this point, we're continuing to advance quickly, but we've found the places where the advancements are going to happen. We know we've prepared for that, so we're designing a manufacturing system that can accommodate that. Basically, you build your factories around what you're going to build. So it, it's okay to skip a couple of iterations if, if you're not ready. But Steve, you've come to the market anyway. It was presumably a fuel cell that will be replaced in a few years' time. Why are you doing that? And we've, we, and we've been in the market for quite a while, actually. The uh, Clarity FCV that we introduced in December uh, is the third vehicle that we've leased to consumers. So uh, what we need to do is we need to get it going. And uh, we need to uh, reward the early investors in the uh, fueling infrastructure. In the case of California, California has a plan for 100 stations by the year 2020. So the states put up money, investors have put up money. We need to put the cars in the market. Uh, there's consumer demand for these cars. So we think it, it's time to start. Well, that wraps up our best of 2017. But stay with us next year for shows on the hottest products the best technology, and fascinating conversations with the men and women who run this ever-changing, always interesting automotive industry. For AutoLine This Week, I'm John McElroy. In the auto industry, you need a partner that can develop the next game-changing technology and mass-produce it quickly. Borg Warner can. Our expertise drives future mobility trends with fast-to-market solutions for clean, efficient propulsion systems. We understand the challenges you face. We know what you need to get ahead. 
we take innovation from the drawing board to the road quickly, providing localized production around the world. Borg Warner, your partner in propulsion system solutions for a cleaner, more energy efficient world.